one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, relax, and listen as we have a conversation about, well... The mundane, the ordinary, the relaxing. One thing we can promise you is that our conversation will be hmm, probably less than fascinating so that you can feel free to just drift off. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you will listen and sleep. That's right, that you will be out by the time this podcast ends. If not, We want to thank you for listening to the whole podcast. I'm your host, Marco Timpano. You can follow us on Twitter, at Listen and Sleep. As well, we invite you to rate us on iTunes. Tell us what you think. Give us a high rating. It will help us to keep the Insomnia Project on. I have the distinct pleasure of having a friend, Christian Davies, on the show today. Welcome, Christian. Hey, thank you for having me. Now, Christian, we were just walking on the beach and with the sand between our toes. We're here at my cottage on Woodland Beach. What did you think of the sand? Uh, parts of it were surprisingly black. Yeah. I saw at Woodland Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, cold. Cold sand. You know, wet. Felt good between the toes. What's your preferred sand to walk on? Do you prefer, like, you know, in some parts of Europe they have, like, pebbles that are mm-hmm. kind of soft and smooth, or do you prefer a really fine sort of powdery sand? You know, it's it's. Uh, I would I would eliminate pebbles okay. quickly. Fair. Uh, I think fine and powdery. The more it feels like I'm walking on a on feathers, the better. I see. I think. Uh, yeah. If it sort of has, it's a good question to ask. You don't want it too hot. Sure. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, you don't want it too rocky. I never thought opinion. of the temperature of the sand, but you're right. Like when I've been to you know, the Dominican or whatnot, you're kind of like running to the water from your yeah, towel right. because the hand, sand is so so hot. Right, it's so true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's almost, uh, yeah, it, there, it, there's a real strategy to getting from one point to the other when the sand is that hot. Sure. Um, so not hot. Okay. Not pebbly. Yeah. Which I guess leaves me with soft and cool. Soft and cool sand. Yeah, All right. And cool. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been on volcanic rock or volcanic? I have. Okay. I've actually gone... Um, uh, surfing down volcanic rock. Oh, in, I didn't know you surf in Nicaragua. I don't. Okay. You don't. For this one, you don't have to. It's more like sledding. Oh, I, oh. So you you so were surfing on the on the. They volcan- call it volcano surfing, but it's really kind of sledding. And what you do is you go with a big group okay. up to the top of a young volcano, 
So young volcanoes are mostly loose rock, loose black rock, which I didn't know. Um, and you and this would be like magma, right? Because it would be the lava that that. I guess that is makes, it kind it of sounds smart enough to be true. Is I'm it porous and black? It's black. Okay. It's, it's porous. It's okay. porous enough. Yeah. It's not uh, too dense. Yeah, because they'll often use volcanic rock in barbecues, gas barbecues. That's mm. the rock that it, because it heats up and it's porous. Really. I don't know if that's why they use volcanic rock. I'm sure it's because it it can withstand really high temperatures. But oftentimes, when you have a um, gas fireplace, it has volcanic rock in it. In a gas fireplace, like in a, just a, in a, in a barbecue. Home? I'm sorry, barbecue, barbecue not fireplace. I don't know why I got those two confused. But have you ever seen the the rocks that are in a uh, barbecue, in a propane barbecue? Uh, in a propane barbecue, I don't think I have. Yeah. Like what's actually inside the tank? No. On the barbecue where the grill is, uh, maybe but between thinking. the grill, between the grill and the bottom of the barbecue, mm -hmm. oftentimes you'll find rocks. They're mm -hmm. black, porous rocks, and they're volcanic rocks. And do you have to change the rocks out, or do if they, they stay? I, the I think after a few years you do because they get full of like meat drippings, and they can get Come a little bit ashy. Porous. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Okay, that's but anyways, nice. back to this yeah. volcanic rock surfing. In did you say Nicaragua? Nicaragua, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, so you you basically go up with a group to the top of this new volcano with the porous rock. Right. And they give you a jumpsuit and big goggles because there's a lot of dust oh, of course. that comes up off the rock. And you each have your own sled, for lack of a better term. Does it look like a toboggan or does it look yeah, like something else? it's close to a toboggan. Okay. Yeah, it's close. And um, you sort of get up there and you're confident on the way up. Because you think, well, this looks pretty gradual, this uh, decline that you're going to be going down on this sled. Sure. And then you get to the top, and you sort of get to the other side of the volcano where you're actually going to be going down on the sled. Right. And uh, it's pretty steep. Oh. <clears throat> pretty steep. Right. So, actually, you know, speaking of how steep it was, the year we were there, which I think was 2008 or nine. um they had just had the world's fastest cyclist had broken the land speed cycling record by going down this thing on a bicycle oh wow yeah uh, and pe some people have been like killed or terribly injured doing it on bikes so you know, we're doing this on a sled right and do you know this prior to doing it <laughs> they sort of tell you on the way up which okay. is an interesting way to get you in the mindset to go down this thing but, sure so anyway, so you get up there with a the sled, and it's sort of what you would expect. One person goes, the next person goes, you know, the next person goes. And mostly for me, I'm just hoping to do it as well, at least as well as my girlfriend and her friends. Okay. That was sort of the pressure. Right? Sure. So they went down, and the idea is you have your legs propped up, so your feet are off the ground, right? You're completely on the sled. Right. And you can use your feet as breaks as long as you don't get going too fast. So you see a lot of people sort of, you know, um, pulling back, hermit crabbing their oh, okay. way kind of down the down the mountain because they don't want to go too fast because it's slick rock. Wow! And you're gonna go fast. Sure. And so I get going, and uh, I'm going, I'm going, but not too fast. Putting my feet out, not too fast. Not thinking I'm like kind of okay looking at least, but secretly terrified. And then I just hit this patch about a halfway down the mountain and just go tumbling. No. But that happened to a lot of people. Okay. But I was definitely one that bit it the worst. Oh, wow. One of the ones that bit it the worst. And, uh, so, you know, you tumble. Sure. You, you 
pop up at the bottom of the thing. You're not hurt because it's soft rock. Right. And, and the just, rocks are light. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Volcanic so rock is very light. Right. And you have this big jumpsuit on. It's sort of like like a lumberjack. Like, you know, it's dense. Right. You know, so you're protected. You have a helmet and goggles okay. and whatnot. But just covered in dirt. So, um, you know, and then you're at the bottom and you sort of tell other people, yeah, I went volcano surfing. But secretly, you know, in your heart, you're an abject failure for having, you know, <laughs> somersaulted halfway down. Fair enough, but what a great story. Now, let me ask you this. Did your girlfriend make it all the way down without I'm pretty tumbling? sure she did. Well, there I'm pretty you sure go. she did. So that teaches you something, right? Sure. Yeah, fool's errand to try to outdo our uh, our loved ones. There you go, you know? see? Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, we're talking about sand and rocks and whatnot, and you know the word arena, I believe, comes from the Greek word arena, which is sand, which means sand. I did not know yeah, that. because arenas back in the day were all uh, sandy, where the gladiators would fight and whatnot. Which brings me to something that someone told me about you that you know, or you're a fan of Aristotle's Poetics. Yeah, that's what true. What exactly is that? I was told that I'm like, oh, I've got to ask him about this, Christian, about Aristotle's Poetics. That's a good question. First, and I would love to talk about it. The mm-hmm. arena thing is interesting. Sure. I'm interested. They named the building after what the ground looked like yeah that's interesting to me well it's funny i once again i'm pretty certain that's what it means because i have a friend whose name is jenny yeah arena and she told me that that's what it means so well it's i mean it kind of makes sense if you think about it right sure because if you think of what does a theater need right or performance space um it certainly needs a stage not to sound highfalutin about it sure no no whatever so maybe the original um, arenas just had were just focused on the stage and they said we're going to call it sand because it's that's where the stage is have you ever been to like an old sort of arena like the uh, Colosseum in Rome yeah I feel like some other ones in my mind's eye are popping up well, I think once you've been to the Colosseum you're pretty like yeah it's funny the Colosseum I didn't think it would strike me the way it did what I loved most about it is that it's so close to the road where Roman traffic is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's right there on the edge of the road, and you yeah, just see cars right. zooming by. And that's what affected me the most when I saw it. And it's an interesting juxtaposition between the, between the modern cars and the giant old arena that's standing right there. Because, you know, somebody's sort of selling discount cell phones, you know, 20 yards from the entrance to the Coliseum yeah, or something. It's, it's pretty funny. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a vibe of hustle around it there. So now tell me about Aristotle's Poetics, because I need to know exactly what this is, and I'm sure some of our listeners are like on, their, on the edge of their bed <laughs> yeah, wondering. Right. Yeah, just in case they're not out yet, this is a good topic to cover. I mean, a lot of people know about Aristotle's Poetics because you sort of get force-fed it sometimes in school. But what it is, basically, it's this 60 or 70-page document that Aristotle wrote about what makes epic poetry, which we think of as literature today, novels, whatever, prose, um, what makes epic poetry and drama, which he called tragedy, work well. So the way we could think of tragedy today would be film, TV, theater. And a lot of really well-known writers... um, David Mamet, Aaron Sorkin, to name a couple, um, Alex Dinolaris, who was a co-writer on Birdman and, and uh, had a great play called Still Life that ran in New York a couple years ago. Uh, they've all sort of said everything you need to know about story structure 
was covered in this 60 or 70 page document by Aristotle uh, a couple thousand years ago. And as an aspiring writer, I always thought, well, that seems kind of intimidating because you would pick it up and the first sentence would say something about the nature of epic poetry is to have um, art imitating life. And it's something like that. I don't okay. know if that's the first sentence, but that's sort of the first couple chapters are about that. And you think to yourself, well, how the heck do I take that and apply it to this sitcom I'm trying to write or this, you know, modern drama about a family in 2016 that I'm trying to write? What does it mean? And so you sort of have to work. I had to work uh, to understand what it meant, and that mostly meant using other resources. So all these great writers quoted this book a lot. And I became determined I'm going to understand what they're talking about. Cool. Right? So I dove in, and it's dry as a bone. Right. This document. So that would stop me right right exactly. off the bat. Okay. So I had to really go through sentence by sentence. And was it translated from ancient Greek into English? Yes. So. Yeah. And I had one of um, the writer, Alex Dinalaris, uh, fortunately gave me a lead to get a certain translation, which was by a guy named S.H. Butcher. Okay. I think it's like a 40 or 50 year old translation, but he does a good job translating it and then he has a bunch of essays in the back of the book that help explain it. Okay. But so I went sentence by sentence through it and two of the biggest takeaways from it that I think everybody would understand and sort of see value in right away is that Aristotle talked about peripatia and anagnoresis, which are two Greek words that that obviously we don't use in English speaking countries. But peripatia means reversal of fortune. Oh, cool. And anagnoresis means moment of realization. So what, how those apply is that if you look at Sophocles' plays that we, most of us had to read in school, Oedipus, the Oedipus cycle being sure. the prominent one, and, you know, Oedipus, um, the king, or Oedipus Rex, as it's called, I think it's the king in the West and Oedipus Rex in Europe, or at least in Greece, Anyway, we all know the story, and if we don't, it's about a king, and it opens right away in the action. King comes out onto a pat- at the patio of the palace, essentially, right. and the whole town is gathered. And the town, from the first time we see them, ravaged by plague. Okay. People are dying, their crops aren't growing, mm-hmm. all this stuff is happening, right? So Oedipus, the king, comes out and says something along the lines of, we need to figure out how to solve this problem. You're right. dying. I love you. You're my people. Right. And he has this he's a very generous, likable figure. You can tell he wants to help his people. Right. And so what happens throughout the course of the very short, still exciting to read and see play, is that Oedipus finds out, the first thing he finds out, this plague has been caused because the gods are upset. What are the gods... Okay, so that's, that's new information. What are the gods upset about? Why have they created this plague upon Thebes, which is where they live. And they find out, and this would be a peripatia, a reversal of fortune, they find out the plague has been set because the gods are angry that somebody in Thebes has murdered their own father and slept with their own mother. Oh, I see. Right? Right. So now we know what we have to find out to get rid of this plague. This is also where we get the con- concept of uh, uh, 
I think it's the Oedipus complex correct. of people sleeping with their, exactly. their mother. Sleeping right? with exactly. their mother, right. exactly correct. And so what you find out throughout the rest of the story is hey, there's one reversal of fortune or peripety after the other, right? Because we have our hero who wants to solve the plague right. in Thebes. He's the king who wants to solve the plague. So we know, according to Aristotle's poetics, and he goes into a little bit of detail on this, the, we need to have that character reach his or her goal, the hero, reach his or her, her goal, which in this case would be to rid the city of the plague. Right. In a surprisingly inevitable way. So he starts out thinking, I'm the king, I'm going to solve this plague by finding the person. Once he finds out that somebody slept with their mother and killed their father, I'm going to find this person. Right. So he starts to get a little hostile when nobody's fessing up to this crime. Sure. And so new pieces of information, I think he sends away the, the, um, the fortune teller who was responsible for giving them information, you know. Um, so anyway, so he finds out that this person killed her father and slept with his mother, and immediately he rules himself out. We start to get backstory on Oedipus. Okay. And the backstory is that, uh, and I'll get this a little bit wrong somewhere, but basically his he, he was from a different town, and I can't exactly remember the details, but he basically his father and didn't kill his father, and he, he certainly didn't sleep with his mother because he's married to the current queen. Right. Right? And so then you find out... His father, you know, this this man that was his father died in a sketchy part of the trail between the two cities, and it starts to line up that wait a second, when Oedipus was younger, he happened to kill a man in that exact same spot, so that's a reversal of fortune. Right. Wait a second, this is keeping our interest, right? Like, wait, this story is changing. This thing is making me feel something, and then you find out later that the queen gave away a baby when she was younger right right and now you start to realize that Oedipus was the baby that they gave away years ago and he didn't know he was the baby right so he came back killed his father on the way to Thebes because they got in a scuffle right married the queen who is his his mother mother, slept with her had children with her she's behind him on the balcony for most of the play right Right. so you have so that would be an anagnoris anagnorisis which is the moment of realization right can also be and should also be a peripatia, a reversal of fortune. Right. But a peripatia doesn't necessarily need to be an anagnoresis. I see. So a peripatia could be we walk into a room, you pull a gun, would be a cliche. Sure. Oh, I thought we were going to talk about what to get for breakfast, and now you pulled a gun on me. Right. But I haven't real, I haven't understood or realized something, like from my backpack, my, from my history, right? If you pull the gun and say, it's me, I'm your brother, or Luke, I am your father. Sure. That's a moment of realization that goes back two movies. That's right. an anagnoresis that took two movies. Right, right. So when everybody goes, oh, oh my God, right. that's what it is. He's his father. Right. right? So, Oedip- so that started thousands of years old in Oedipus Rex. Wow. Oh my God. You know, it's him. He killed his father and he slept with his mother. And his wife, who he loves as a wife, adores as a wife throughout the whole play. Finds out she's his mother. Right. Queen, she, you are my mother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, right? Sure. It's almost like I pulled straight out of it. She goes back inside the palace and hangs herself oh. while he's talking in the course of this play. He goes back into the palace, finds his wife hanging in right. the bedroom, his mother, who's also his mother, 
pulls a golden brooch off of her dress of her dead body as she hangs in their bedroom right. and rips his eyes out with her brooch. Wow. Comes back out onto the patio and like tries to plead forgiveness from Thebes for right. having brought this plague on their house and eventually you know, is escorted out of the city as this incredibly sympathetic figure. Right. So, Luke, I am your father. Mm. Queen, you are my mother. Right. <laughs> right? That's the connection. I, I say that when I play chess a lot. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you know. Um, so those are really, so those are in Aristotle's poetics. And if you start to look at how good film and theater works in television now, turning points are really simple, right? It's something new that gets included in the story that knocks the hero's journey off course, right? And then the anagnoresis, the moment of realization, are those gasp moments, those, oh, right. you know, famous ones in Chinatown, which and people talk about Chinatown being a great script all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's, first of all, there's a couple great ones in that script. One would be um, when, and spoiler alerts, obviously, okay. but one would be when... Uh, so if you haven't watched Chinatown and you're wanting to watch it without being spoiled of a plot point, now would be the time to pull the earphones out of your ear and just hang out for about two minutes before you put them back in. Correct. Um, and so in Chinatown, there's a couple famous smaller peripatia, sure. right? Reversals of fortune. The first one is for the first maybe 15 or 20 minutes of that movie, we're following Jack Nicholson as a private investigator, and right. he's he's investigating uh, a crime for a woman named Ellen Mulray who thinks her husband is cheating on her. And so we think a straightforward private detective movie. Sure. Right? Jack Nicholson, great to look at, you know, beautifully shot, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, this woman shows up in his office. He comes to his office one afternoon, and there's a woman sitting there. And she goes, you're investigating, you know, um, Ellen Mul- Evelyn. It's Ellen or Evelyn. Anyway, Mulray's husband. But I am. Evelyn Mulray, oh. or whatever it is. Right. right. So now we go, he's not even, he's been investigating a crime for the wrong woman. And then the famous one that comes towards the climax of the movie is... So uh, really take your headphones out if you haven't at this point. Correct. This this female character that he's been helping along the whole time and doing these investigations for, we finally realize what she's trying to hide. And ironically enough, it's similar to Oedipus Rex and Star Wars. Right. She so don't understand, he's my... Um, He's my uh, my husband and my father. I can't but butchering the exact line. Right. Basically, you see that this woman has been sexually assaulted and has been having to cover it up for all these years. Oh wow! So everybody goes. Oh, that right. makes everything else before it makes sense. Right. Um. So yeah. So then that's all in this little sixty-page pamphlet, and I think writers have referenced it so much, just mainly for those two concepts. Now, as a writer, has reading Aristotle's Poetic made you a better writer? Uh, it's made me enjoy the process of writing a lot more because I feel like I know what I'm aiming at. I see. You know, it's always subjective whether something resonates with some people or not. But I used to drive myself crazy because uh, I wasn't sure what I was aiming for as a writer. There would be like a funny or a moving sentence or a scene, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't know how to flesh that out into a fuller story with bigger payoffs and developed characters. And now at least I know I'm aiming for that. It's still hard. Sure. Just because you know of a couple principles doesn't mean it's easy to sit down and do it. Fair. Um, but at least you're not walking aimless or exactly. writing 
or typing on your keyboard aimlessly, you exactly. have direction in, in some shape or form. Yeah, there's does a that target. Make sense? There's it, a target, does, thank 100%, you. Yeah. There's a target. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I also, it makes me a better fan. Because now right. when I see those moments in something or read them in something, I appreciate them. But let me ask you this. Do you see them coming now that you know the concepts, thanks to Aristotle's? Like, do you, can you, is it kind of like, oh, I know what's going to happen. A will equal B plus C, or C uh, equals A minus B, as you're as you're watching, say, a movie or reading reading a story. You know, that's a really good question, and I would say, um, fortunately, probably, okay. I'm such a big fan right. of movies, books, TV, and theater. Sure. That I still get really super in the moment and lost in what's happening. Oh, that's awesome. And so they they sneak up on me mm-hmm. uh, still, which is great. In hindsight, I can I can look back. As far as seeing them coming occasionally, but I have to be consciously putting effort towards looking for them. Sure. If that makes sense. If yeah. I'm just a passive viewer or an active viewer, right. uh, they still sneak up on me. But yeah, I, if I consciously am trying to figure something right. out, and even if I'm hitting the pause button or something, and I have time to think about well, it. Let me ask you this then: mm-hmm. When you see a bad piece of writing, or mm-hmm. a bad screenplay, or a bad movie, will you say what they were missing was? one of the principles from Aristotle that would have made the, the movie better. Definitely the turns. The turns, right. The turning one, moments, right. Yeah, I think a lot of things don't have... Nothing happens. Right. And I think people mistake, um, especially in literature, their voice can be prominent. And voice can be interesting enough. You know, we, we read a great piece of literature like sure. James Joyce or Richard Ford or... Annie Prue or somebody like that. Even the guy who wrote a a hundred million little pieces or a million little pieces. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget his name. James Fry? James Fry. Right. There was so much controversy because he had said it was a memoir. Right. But the book itself, I don't know if you read it, was a fantastic read because it was his voice. Yeah. Regardless of whether it was fiction or non, he could have just said, well, here's my book and I think it would have sold. Yeah. Uh, Cool cover, too, of a hand covered in little, 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 I want to say like little dots of... uh, I don't know sugar or whatnot, but yeah. But anyways, yeah, and he should, I mean, he should he should still write that guy. I hope he's writing under a pen name you know, somewhere. He actually owns a publishing house, and he publishes a lot of books that are made into movies, including the one. I don't know if the Divergent series is one of his oh, books, okay. but okay. those kind of books, anyways. Right, right. He but, doesn't need our plug, but you no, were he saying sorry. That's true. Um, but I didn't even know he was still out there, so that's you know good on uh, him. Yeah. Hey, listen. Once Oprah yells at you, there's always a way to come back, right? No press is bad press, right? <laughs> Be nice to have you Oprah yell at me. Um, so yeah, what were we saying? We were saying, uh, oh, bad bad writing. Yeah. So I think you know voice and literature and things like that. Sometimes people think voice is enough. Right. Um, and I think if somebody is only a voice writer. Right like a Richard Ford, like a James Joyce, sure. like an Annie Prue, like a Dennis Johnson, whatever. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your voice, exactly. Uh, you have to be so good right. at voice that it's interesting enough for us and moving and engaging enough for us to go along on the ride with you. It has to be as good as music. It has to be sentence by sentence as interesting as a great song. There you go. You know what I mean? Because songs don't have to have a narrative. Right. So great literature sometimes doesn't have to have a narrative. Um, I don't I don't ever see it work well in film, TV, or theater. Fair. I'll, t- I'll tell you who works it well, mm-hmm. both a songwriter and a writer and a poet. 
one of my favorites is Leonard Cohen. Sure. Yeah. My dad's favorite, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you one thing we need more of, and that's your voice. We've come to the end of this episode, but there's what? so much, yeah, there's oh, so God. much more that you and I can talk about. So I'll have you on the Insomnia Project for a future show where we can pick up this topic and talk more about writing. Our listeners can follow you on Twitter at Chuck Crash Davies, and you'll see that in Chuck, our... It's actually Chuck Crash Davis without the E. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, no, it's funny. It's complicated. Because your name is with the E, right, Davies? name is with the E. But, but your Twitter is My friends call me Davis, which is a weird, confusing thing. Well, yeah. well, you know what? Listen... Sometimes in life things are confusing. They just, sure are, just, ask on Ar- just ask Aristotle. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, Christian Davies Davis, whatever you want to be called, I want to sure. thank you once That's again you. for yeah. being on the Insomnia Project. We'll have you on a future show because this was far too much fun and fascinating. You're listening to the Insomnia Project, as always, produced by Drumcast Productions, and this episode was recorded steps away from the beach here on Georgian Bay.